Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 355 for December 18th, 2023. And hopefully you guys are all kind of winding down now. The holiday season, the end of the year is coming up. And hopefully you guys are getting ready to take a break from work and all the hubbub and have a chance to chill out and hang out with your friends, family, and loved ones. Uh, I know I'm very much looking forward to that myself. So today we've got my annual best of episode. And if you're a longtime listener, these will all be snippets that you have heard because they're all going to be clips from the last year. But I went back and tried to find some of the, gosh, it's, it was hard to pick some interviews since I do one every other week. It's basically 26 to choose from. And there were a lot of great interviews this year. I, I've managed to reach out and find some great people to bring on the show. And I like them all. <laughs> it was really hard to pick. This is more of a kind of a, a representative snapshot. And so this is a nice little refresher for some of you that have been with me long enough to have heard all of these. Uh, I would like to suggest, however, that if you think that someone else might be interested in the podcast, this would be a great one. Actually, the the next few I'm going to be doing uh, would be great ones to share with other people because they're kind of highlights, right? Um, highlight reels. So uh, I'll just plant that little little bug in your brain. Um, but so we've got, I got about six clips here and I'm going to basically walk you through each one of these and give a little bit of contextual, you know, introduction and, and a little bit of segues between each of them. But, uh, I picked some kind of samples from interviews I've done this year with Andy Yen and Cashmere Hill and, uh, the guys from the cult of the dead cow. Of course, I had to bring in a clip from Corey Doctorow in, but also picked uh, a couple snippets from Vincent Hendricks and Michael Littman. So let's get to some of the best snippets from Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons 2023. All right, this first clip is uh, from an interview I did on October 16th. Uh, it was episode 347 with Andy Yan, who is the CEO and founder of Proton. I've had him on the show multiple times now. He's a great guy. He's been very supportive. He actually did a wonderful blurb for the, my book. It's actually featured on the back cover of the book. It was so good. And he's been very supportive. And uh, he actually reached out to me when they acquired Simple Login and said, hey, you ought to you ought to interview the, the CEO of Simple Login, which I did. Uh, that was another great interview. And this little kind of a short clip I picked from the interview is Andy talking about how LastPass handled their breach. And honestly, the real issue was not so much how they handled the breach, which wasn't great, uh, but what it revealed about what they were doing behind the scenes, which was even worse. And then he talks a little bit about it's not necessarily a bad thing that you're going to be breached because everyone's going to be breached. It's really a matter of how you respond to that and how you prepare for it. But anyway, I'll let the expert give you his opinion on that. We know from the last pass uh, breach was the last pass breach was the fact that you know they didn't encrypt the uh, you know um, website well, sure, yes. and, and, and the domains. Right? That was you know, horrible. Uh, you know um, they didn't use bcrypt. They used some other you know weak uh, hashing algorithm, right? So it wasn't that they got hacked. Everybody's going to get hacked sooner or later, right? It's bound to happen. It, it, is, it is inevitable. It was that their security practices uh, were so poor that they made it really easy to take that data and potentially breach it in the future. And so if you're a LastPass user, your encrypted data store is sitting somewhere on the internet, and it's just a matter of time before someone's able to crack it because they didn't use the right technologies. So here's a question for you, and this is this is a tough one, and this is what I, the people have asked me: Do you stop trusting a company like LastPass? Did uh, do or do you hope that they're going to fix it and move and, and get better as a result of this? What, how many strikes do you give a company like, like you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in kind of like a perverse way, I almost sort of uh, prefer a company that's had an incident <laughs> because because uh, if you never had an incident, maybe you just never aware and never woke up, right? <laughs> right. Uh, Right. So, so, so I, I think the fact that they had an incident does mean that they take it more seriously now. And that might be better than someone that, that, you know, never got hacked. Right. But you also need to look at the nature of the hack. Right. And, you know, security, where it comes from ultimately is culture. It's people. It's the way they think, the way they act, the way they behave, what they consider to be acceptable. Mm. And if you look at the last past situation, what was considered to be acceptable was actually an extremely low bar. And I'm sure they're awake now, but to realign the bar for your entire organization, you know, top to bottom, uh, that's an extremely difficult thing to do and very, very hard to do on a short time frame, right? 
so I would be still a bit wary, let's say, right? Uh, because I know from personal experience how hard it is to change culture within, within an, an you know, organization. But yeah, I think it's wrong to kind of say, you know, oh, if you got hacked, then you're bad because everybody's going to get right. hacked sooner or later. It, 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 it is kind of inevitable. But it's really a question of, you know, where was your bar at, right? And, you know, um, what, and, and what the hack can often teach us is sort of the level of, you know, rigor that a company had in the work that they you know, were doing. And that can be very telling. Well, I think another example is Zoom, because back in the day when Zoom, you know, when COVID hit, Zoom went from a nobody to a household name, and they were claiming all this end-to-end encryption, which turned out they didn't have. But then their response to that, I thought, was, you know, good. I mean, they hired a lot of top-notch people, uh, some people that, you know, anybody in the security industry would know their names, uh, to come in and, and fix things. And I think they actually have made a lot of progress. Um, so... Yeah, I think sometimes maybe it takes an incident like that to 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 yeah, get you to yeah. you know shape up. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's it's kind of a wake up call, right? Yeah. And it's uh, you know, so I can give it kind of, and this is all the same for you know uh, uh, legal processes, right? You know, there are some people out there, you know, in the space pinning against Proton, who, who you know what they say is, oh, you, you know, um, Proton had this, you know, uh, uh, had legal issues and legal court cases for you know, you know, governments came after Proton user data, et cetera, et cetera right? And, and you know, um. And uh, we're better because it's never happened to us. <laughs> and, and, and my reaction to that is, uh, you know, that's not the case, right? Because because it never happened, uh, no one actually knows what will happen when they come for you, right? You don't, right. You don't even know yourself, right? Uh, but, you know, Proton, because there's been thousands of cases, there's now, a tr- uh, you know, a strong legal track record and precedent of how this is handled, right? You know conclusively what Proton has or doesn't have. Because it's gone through seven thousand cases, right? Uh, so, so, so it's it's kind of the same, I, I think, with you know security as well. The 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 notion of being battle tested is actually a real notion, and I think uh, you know organizations are frequently under attack. It does make them tougher. You know, um, I'm not saying that we have the best DDoS protection in the world, but the fact that we've been hit so regularly, so consistently over the past six years, has made us do some things different that probably other companies that don't get hit, uh, you know, wouldn't do. All right, this next debit is from Cashmere Hill. This is from an interview I did with her not too long ago, uh, September 18th, uh, episode 342. She had just written a book called Your Face Belongs to Us. She, of course, is a famous New York Times reporter. She's done a lot of great work on privacy, uh, some really amazing articles. If you haven't read them, go to the New York Times and just look up her byline. She's done some really big time articles. And she was the one that broke the story about Clearview AI back in, I think, January of 2020, I think is when that came out the company that has been sucking up all of our photos from social media, literally billions of images of faces, obviously not billions of people. Some of these are repeats, but, uh, and then put all these things into a big database and put an app on it. And basically you could walk around town and take a picture of just about anybody. And if they've got a presence online, this thing would find their face and tell you who they were. It was super creepy. And, uh, we're actually reading this book right now in our patron book club. Uh, I, kind of skimmed it really quickly before the interview. I had a chance to get a pre-release copy of that uh, before I interviewed Cashmere. But now I want to go back and read it uh, much more closely. It's just a just a fascinating story. It is, it's almost a gripping thriller as you're reading it. And this little snippet that I picked from the interview kind of walks through how she found out about these guys, or this guy really, what this company was doing and the really creepy origins of it and how they really try to prevent her from doing her reporting. So I'll, I'll let Kashmir tell the story. Clearview AI, uh, the company, scraped billions of photos from social media sites and the public web without people's consent to build a facial recognition app that is incredibly accurate. I have seen it pull up all kinds of photos. For me, when you do a search now, uh, the last time I did it with the CEO, there were 176 photos. It works even when I kind of cover up my mouth and my nose. It's really remarkable. Sometimes it'll bring up photos of me just in the background of someone else's photo. I remember one where I was walking down the street and I actually didn't recognize my face and I wasn't sure it was me. But then the jacket I was wearing is one that I bought at a vintage store in Tokyo that is very singular. And so I was like, wow, that that's actually me. And yeah, and so as you as you mentioned, when they first started, it wasn't just a superpower they were 
building for the police. They were, you know, your typical startup trying to figure out how do we sell this? How do we make money? And originally they thought it would be far more lucrative to sell it to private industry. And so they were, you know, trying to sell it to banks, to corporate real estate firms, to hotels. And they just kind of happened into finding police as the right customers. And really their earliest beta users were billionaires. Mm-hmm. When they were trying to get money to keep the the company going, they were going to all these venture capital firms. They went to Peter Thiel, you know, f- one of the most famous venture capitalists out there, was one of the co-founders of PayPal and invested in Facebook, created the company Palantir. And yeah, these billionaires were kind of just using it in their everyday lives, using it at, at work conferences so they could remember people's names, showing it off at parties. Um, My favorite anecdote was John Katzmatidis, who has run for mayor in New York unsuccessfully, owns supermarkets here, a whole bunch of other things. He had the app on his phone and he was out at an Italian restaurant called Cipriani's and his daughter walked in with, you know, a a unknown man on her arm. And so Mm -hmm. he had a waiter take a photo of them. And then he ran the guy's face through Clearview AI, found out who he was, and then send his his daughter a text message about the guy. The company did not want me to write about them. I just want to make that clear. When I was first looking into this company, they really were not interested in talking to a journalist. And uh, they they had kind of hidden who was involved in the company. There was very little online. They had an address, an office address on their website that turned out not to exist. When I walked to the building, it just wasn't there. And Juan Tan Tat, who I eventually discovered was involved in the company, he was actually using a pseudonym on LinkedIn and going by John Good. So uh, I just, and part of the book is about that, like digging in and trying to figure out who the people are behind this. And Part of what I found out about their reticence to be known was partly because they had built this radical app that I think they knew was going to be very controversial, but also because Juan Tantet had what one of the investors called a a little gawker history. And Mm. that was that – so when he – first came to the United States. He he grew up in Australia and at 19 years old, he flew across the world and moved to Silicon Valley. And, you know, he's one of those people who was developing, you know, little quizzes on Facebook. And then when the iPhone got big, he was building iPhone games. And at one point he tried to make kind of a YouTube clone and in attempting to make it go viral, was essentially collecting people's uh, instant messenger credentials so that he could send messages to all of their friends. And Mm. it very quickly went, uh, started spreading very, very, very fast. And people started freaking out because they were sending messages to their friend, telling them to check out this site called Video. And he got labeled a hacker who created a phishing scam, who created a worm. Mm. Uh, Gawker wrote Valley Wag, it was called at the time. Gawker's uh, tech blog said that the police were looking for him. So it wasn't the greatest Google footprint for somebody who's trying to go to investors and, and get money. Or to somebody who's trying to sell, you know, this radical tool to the police. This I thought this was fascinating too. As you were doing this, and you were, and you finally got a hold of the app, and and you had somebody scan it your face, there was oddly no pictures of you, which there should have been plenty, right? If this app was doing its job, there should have been plenty, and yet there were precisely zero. And then at one point, the person you had doing it actually got a call immediately from the company. Talk talk to me about that story. Yeah. So so when I was first investigating Clearview, you know, I tried to go to this office that doesn't exist. I'm calling and emailing and reaching out to people who appear to have ties to the company. You know, I'm I'm finding them through corporate filings, business filings, uh, saw a couple of investors listed for them, including Peter Thiel. And basically no one would call me back or they would say, I don't know what you're talking about. It was, it was, I was hitting a lot of dead ends. And so I knew that the company claimed to be selling to police. So I started looking for police officers who had used the app. And I found this detective in Gainesville named Nick Ferrara. He was a financial crimes detective. And he was the first person who would talk to me about Clearview and was so excited to talk about Clearview because he loved the app. And he said it worked like nothing he had used before. You know, police have had access to facial recognition technology for two decades now. But 
it just didn't work that well. And he said, Clearview is amazing. It works, you know, when somebody's looking away from the camera, they can be wearing glasses, a hat. He said, I had this stack of, you know, financial fraudsters who I'd run through you know, our state facial recognition system and got nothing. And then once I got Clearview AI, which you got for free because Clearview would give out these free trials to police officers, he said, I started running it through and I just got hit after hit after hit. I'd love to be their spokesperson. And I said, well, I'd really, I'd really like to see what this is like. Like, can you, can you show me a search or, or do a search? And uh, he said, yeah, sure. Just send me your photos and I'll do a search of your face and I'll show you what the results are. And so I sent him three photos and then he stopped talking to me and would not respond to my emails or phone calls. I talked to another officer in Texas, the same thing happened. Uh, no, sorry. And I talked to another officer in Texas and he ran my photo and he said, you don't have any results. And we both thought that was strange. He said, mm -hmm. yeah, it's really weird. You should have results. You know, when I Google your name, you have lots of photos online. He said, you know, maybe their servers are down. <laughs> then he stopped talking to me. And then I did this with a third police officer who was was basically helping us with the investigation. He said, yeah, sure, I'll like sign up for the app and I'll tell you what the experience is like. And he ran my photo, got no results. But then he got a phone call a couple of minutes later, and it was somebody who said they were from Clearview AI tech support and that he had run this unusual search and did he know Kashmir Hill from the New York Times? And they deactivated his account and oh, then wow. he told me what happened and I realized, oh my God, this company won't talk to me and yet they have, they, they are tracking who I am talking to by seeing who's uploading my photo. And I realized how much power Clearview AI had, that they could see who law enforcement was looking for, and right. they could control whether you're findable or not. They had basically blocked my face from from having any results. And and that it was it was chilling for me on a couple of different levels just to realize that they were monitoring me like that. And it was chilling for the police officer. He said, Wow, I wouldn't think that a company would have that kind of access. Like I'm looking right. for suspects in criminal investigations. I don't think that they should be looking at my searches. And he also started thinking about undercover officers and how difficult a tool like this would would make their lives. Oh, sure. And yeah. So anyways, it was it was it was really striking for me as an investigative journalist to have that kind of experience with a company. All right. This next clip is one of my favorite interviews from the year. And I added rare opportunity to talk to two of the original members of the cult of the dead cow. And if you've never heard of them, this is a original hacker group from way back in the day, back when hacking really was just getting started. And the whole hacker culture thing just fascinates me. Ever since I've started going to DEF CON in particular, I've just found the whole thing just wonderfully interesting. And these two guys did not disappoint. I was so, so happy to get a chance to talk to these guys and interview them. And I actually had a chance to meet them and even party with them out in Las Vegas when we went to DEF CON this year. So uh, anyway, it was hard for me not to just include the whole, the whole interview. But there's a couple key questions here that I asked him. And one of them was, you know, what it was like back in the day, particularly for them as young hackers, did they keep it from their parents? Did they keep it from their friends? What What the environment was like? And then I asked them, what is it that makes you a hacker? What kind of proclivities, what kind of interests, what kind of personality style lends yourself to being a hacker? And then that transitioned into something that they really pioneered was hacktivism and using hacking for good, for, you know, social justice. I Maybe that's an overloaded term today. But it's anyway, I just find the whole thing fascinating. Again, I, I it's much better if I just let them let them tell the story. So let's let's get to Misha and Luke or Omega and Death Veggie from the Cult of the Dead Cow. As you were growing up, like how did you tell your parents and or friends about this stuff? Was what was the kind of the vibe of saying you were a hacker? Was it kind of a closeted thing? Like you had to come out at some point and say, Yes, I'm a hacker. And then what do you how do you think the the perception of hackers and hacking has changed since since you were kids? Well, for me, it was definitely like a sort of closeted thing at first. I might, you know, I definitely didn't share that with my parents. I think, you know, they kind of figured stuff, some, you know, certainly that something was going on when I'd be up all night on the on the computer because that's when nobody would call and right. knock me offline or what have you. But, you know, I can't remember how it first, you know, if there was a moment where I was like, mom, dad, I'm a <laughs> hacker or anything like that. 
but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've never asked them about that. Like when they kind of figured it out or, or, or what, but that's, that's kind of, you know, I should, maybe I should ask them. Um, <laughs> but definitely there was a, a negative stigma uh, attached to it then. I mean, both from socially and just like, Oh, you're a nerd kind of a thing. Mm. But also there was this idea in, in the, the popular press and certainly amongst law enforcement that a hacker was necessarily a criminal was right. somebody who is either destroying things or stealing things or breaking things. And for the vast majority of us, yeah, I mean, that was, that was not our goal. And it was essentially yeah. the reason that we were breaking into things was, was twofold first, cause we wanted to learn. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, as a, as a, you know, a 12 year old kid in, in rural Massachusetts, nobody's going to give you access to a, a big and therefore interesting computer system. Right. So if you want to get it into one, you have to break into it and that's how you learn about it. But also we were never trying to, to break those systems or, or delete things because, you know, then, then they, they'd close the door. You wouldn't yeah, be able to use it yeah. anymore. Yeah. It, it, it's um, you might break things accidentally, but. It, it's ironic the way, you know, hackers and hacking was, was portrayed in the press back then. Cause generally we, as Luke said, we had a credo, right? That there was such a thing as the hacker ethic. Um, yeah. And there's freedom a, in of fact, there's information. A, there's mm -hmm. a very famous text file, uh, written about it. Um, but, but generally, you know, we were there to learn. We were there to explore. We're, you know, doing things in pursuit of knowledge. And it's true that some of that knowledge society considered illicit, but, you know, we were not there to destroy anything. You know, and, and contrast that with today. Uh, we have organized cybercrime. We have mm -hmm. ransomware. We have cyber stalking, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm still having a hard time now being lauded as, uh, or, or having a hard time with CDC being lauded as white hats by Joe Mann and, and, and even AT&T, which is surprising. Uh, when, when we spent yeah. decades being dismissed or vilified as black hats and villains, yeah. right? So that that's also kind of strange. But. I mean, there was no even concept of, of white versus black hat. It was just hackers are bad. Yeah. And yeah. it's... I, I think that that's changed a lot now, as as you kind of alluded to with the idea of life hacks and, you know, we're hacking this or this, this kind of hack. And that's great. I mean, like, unreservedly, that's great. I, I think... It, and, and Misha, as you also say, kind of now we have, and you, you describe them as like, you know, cyber criminals or these or, or, or gangs and stuff like that. And like, that's a much more accurate way to describe, <laughs> you know, these groups mm -hmm. is like, it's like, okay, maybe they are doing hacking, but that's, you know, but their identity or, you know, how to identify them is not, they are quote unquote hackers. Like it's, it's. Yeah, you know, they have a goal in mind, and that is to you know, either is usually to make money. I mean, or to achieve some sort of, you know, if they're a nation state actor right. or something like that. I've been involved in in computer security in one form or another since 1983, but it, it wasn't until about 1998 when you could actually get employed in computer mm. security, right? And and that's due in large part to the public perception of of hackers and hacking then and. It's also why only a few people in my family are aware of my involvement in CDC or hacking at all. My parents do not know. Still. I never told them they do not know. Um, you know, mostly because it would be difficult to change the narrative in their heads, right? If I sat oh, them wow. down and told them this, hmm. I, it, it would be hard for me to convince them the value of what I was doing or that what I was doing had some kind of moral or ethical compass to it. Um, you it can't just give them the CDC sense. book. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, yeah. it's like, do you, you don't have to believe me, mom. Take it from Joe, Joe men. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a, that's a great transition. Actually, that's a perfect segue because Misha, I want to talk to you about the, the, the kind of the moral aspects of this and the origin of the term hacktivism, which you, as you said, is something that you guys came up with. I think you in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what does it mean? What, is the, what does the term hacktivism mean? You wrote a whole declaration about it. So like, what were some of the core principles there? And then I'm, I'm curious if, if, you know, that was that declaration was written some time ago. If you were to update that today, would you change anything? Hmm. So to me, hacktivism is a, a policy of hacking, freaking, creating technology to achieve, achieve a, a, a political or a social goal um, in support of human rights. But it means I think generally hacktivism means different things, different people, you know, since we coined it in the nineties, it's really taken on kind of a life of its own. It certainly has a, I would say a geopolitical aspect now that it didn't then. Right. 
Um, and, and even within CDC, we have disagreements about what counts as hacktivism and what doesn't. Hmm. Some of us believe that denial of service and web defacements can be a permissible kind of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Others in CDC don't. So, you know, I, I can only tell you what, what I think hacktivism is. Luke, you know, you, you, you probably have some, uh, some thoughts on this as well. I think, you know, as Misha sort of uh, alluded to, there are different, you know, it's, it's not like there's a hard and fast encompassing definition. Um, I would say so the, the sort of the declare the hacktivism declaration was an attempt by CDC to, to put something out there that would kind of flesh out this sort of idea and what this, what this, the concept was, but even, even then and ongoing, there are disagreements within the herd as to, you know, what is acceptable behavior and what is not. You know, for personally, I think that you know I view the idea of of a denial of service being uh, of a of a company's website or of a of a to to achieve an activist goal being no different than say chaining yourselves to the doors of a, mm-hmm. or chaining the doors shutter mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, I, I view it as a as a direct sort of you know, corollary, however, or analogy rather. But other people did not necessarily agree with that, and so it's you know we we're not a hive mind. We're heard. <laughs> well, like activism in general. I mean, define it, right? It's yeah. hard to do. Yeah. So in 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 you know in 1999, we we created an offshoot that we called Hacktivismo, and so this was a group that included uh, not just hackers but also lawyers and activists. And Oxblood Ruffin, who's a CDC member in particular, was kind of leading leading this effort, um, especially to develop tools designed to help dissidents in in repressive regimes avoid censorship and, and surveillance. Um, CDC is very much, uh, has, has always been about the free flow of information. I mean, you know, at heart, we are publishers. <clears throat> We've been bu- publishing things yeah. since 1984, so the free flow of information is something very near and dear to all of us. Um, and ha- so hacktivism, uh, it's hacktivismo rather, uh, came out with a bunch of different software. Um, they, they created Peekabooty, um, which, which allowed people to bypass some national firewalls back then. So sort of a predecessor to Tor. Some of the same yeah, people. Exactly, who, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Started Tor came out of the, the hacktivismo movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, camera shy um, was a, a steganographic application that allowed people to hide, you know, content within other content. Hacktivismo uh, created like one of the first secure instant messaging clients um, called ScatterChat. So, you know, hacktivismo was, was, I, I think was very successful. Um, and drew together a, you know, a group of people who, who weren't just hackers. Um, I think, but uh, go, go I ahead. just want, I just want to add like, uh, it ties into something else because one of the things you mentioned is like including lawyers. And one of the people that was in, involved with activismo was Patrick Ball, who's a mm-hmm. human rights, uh, human rights, I think he's a lawyer, but he's certainly a human rights activist. But, um, and we, we hosted him. We actually did a, a human rights panel, like ha- hackers and human rights at, at DEF CON. And I think, 2000 or maybe 2001 mm-hmm. but uh the interesting thing is like patrick ball was is he's a real human rights lawyer like a real um and so he was actually called as a witness when slobodan milosevic the serbian dictator was on trial at the hague um right, yeah. he patrick ball was called to testify and slobodan milosevic is representing himself and in court, you know, he stands up, he's like, you know, so Mr. Ball, tell me more about this dead cow cult that you are part of. <laughs> and like, and I remember us seeing that and be like, okay, that's really freaking weird. There's a, there's you know, video of that too, right? Came, yeah, there is. Yeah. There's yeah, video. Yeah. And yeah, it's, yeah. it was all recorded and, and it's, but it was this sort of freaky, like, okay, this club that we're in effectively has you know has entered into the the real world in a way that we did not foresee like there's one thing it's like oh okay you know other people in computers know about us and stuff not in the our name is in the mouth of a genocidal dictator (laughs) right Um, yeah you 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 know you've arrived as a hacktivist group when you're (laughs) name checked in a war crimes tribunal yeah yeah But um, yeah. so go, going back to, to hack, hacktivismo, so you know they 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 released a bunch of, of really good software, um, you know, and in in at least one case they influenced you know, Tor probably. But I, I think hacktivismo was kind of also the way that that Oxblood and and um, uh, other members of CDC tried to, you know, put some guardrails uh, mm-hmm. around hacktivism to kind of define it, and that was around the time that that. 
CDC proclaimed that, you know, to us, hacktivism includes support for the UN Declaration on Human Rights. So, you know, in that declaration, uh, the United Nations says that, you know, access to information, access to speech, access to privacy, these are all guaranteed human rights, right? And so this, you know, ties really well with, with you know, CDC being an, an organization that believes in the free flow of information, right? So, you know, hacktivism ha- was able to you know, I think refine kind of the definition of hacktivism, at least to us, right? And so that's why I say that, you know, it, it, it's a, a, a policy of hacking or, or creating technology that, that achieves a, a political or social goal, but in support of human rights, right? Um, access to information being one of those. Yeah, I, I mean, when we, I, I read the declaration and it was, I thought it was interesting that it called out those specific, you know, national kind of human rights, no, not treaties is the wrong word, but it's, well, yeah, it's 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 almost a treat. It has not been ratified by yeah. by many countries. I think there are a few that, that have ratified it. I, as far as I know, the United States has not ratified it. Agreements. I mean, yeah, agreements. Yeah, yeah probably, okay. Thank you. That's probably a good word for it. But it, but it really called that out. And in and in contrast, you guys have definitely also called out other groups that have like actually taking part in cyber war, cyber warfare. Yeah, like a, um, yeah, you know, yeah. Talk a little bit of, uh, about some of the some of that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I I. I to me, one of the most consequential things that, that we've ever done as an activist group is that we, we intervened to prevent a cyber war. So in, in 1998, an activist group called Legions of the Underground, LOU, declared war against cyber war against Iraq and, and China and planned on disabling internet access to those countries in retaliation for, for what, the, you know, for, for human rights abuses there. That was, that was their reason. Um, and, you know, we opposed this for, for numerous reasons. Um, you know, in, in the activism that we practice, as I said, we support the UN's Universal Declaration on Human Rights, you know, which says you have access to, to information, you know, and, and to, 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 to quote, uh, Reed Fleming from Culpa Did Cal, um, you know, he said, one cannot legitimately hope to improve a nation's free access to information by working to disable its data networks, right? So uh, CDC assembled an international coalition of hacker groups and publications uh, like 2600 Magazine, Chaos Computer Club, HISPA Hack, Loft, and others. And we issued a joint statement to explain why we thought this was dangerous and wrongheaded and, and made it clear that if LOU went through with their plan, they would be pariahs. And it worked. It worked. LOU kind of called off their action. They, they, didn't, they didn't attack Iraq or China. And then, so fast forward to 2012, Luke, Reed, Fleming, and I are on a panel at one of the premieres of Brian Knappenberger's documentary, We Are Legion, which is about um, hacktivism and specifically about anonymous, mostly, mostly about anonymous. So after the panel was over, a member of LOU came up to us who was in the audience, coincidentally in the audience, hmm. and he thanked us. He said, you saved my life. Wow. He said, you know, I'm married, I have a family, I have a job hmm. now. You know, there was disagreement within LOU about whether we should do this or not. At the time, you know, the, the go ahead and do it argument was winning. When you guys put out that, that joint statement, it helped some of us win the argument within LOU. And, you know, I, I'm, he, said, he said specifically to us, if, if we had done that, I think I would be in prison. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have the life that I have now. And so I, that was just... Uh, an amazing experience to, to have, to have so that kind of feedback to sort of see about, you know, what was going on behind the other side of the screen and, and for somebody to come up and, and, you know, uh, tell us about this impact that, that we had made on. And it must've been really validating, right? I mean, for, yeah, for the positions you guys had taken and I, that, that's fantastic. That's a really cool story. Wow. Okay. So we're, we're running out of time, but I had so many other questions we didn't even get a chance to get to, but I, before we get out of here, I wanted to lighten things up a little bit and, and ask, I, I, my theory is that there are people listening to this right now who have latent hacker tendencies that don't know it. And so I, what I'd be curious to know before we quit is what are some hacker tendencies that we might have that you think some tendencies we might have that, that, that might mean we're hackers. Like we, we, I was actually thinking in the Jeff Foxworthy, I was saying like, you might be a redneck if like you might be a hacker if that you might not think about, but I think there are people out there that, that might have some of these proclivities. So like, for instance, myself, I mean, looking back, I didn't really grok this as a kid, but I mean, I used to take all my electronics toys apart and, and I put them back together in different ways and find new ways to make them work. 
and do other things. And to me, that was, that was hacking. That was that, that was the curiosity, the, the tinkerer in me that first led me to electrical engineering as a degree and then on to, uh, onto software. And yeah, yeah, I still missed the, the true hacker boat, uh, that you guys were in. But so looking back at, at yourselves, maybe and some of your own experiences, and then obviously the people that you've, you know, rubbed elbows with over the years, what were some personality traits or, are, are things that might lead you to believe that you that you might be interested in this as a, as something you oh, want to do? Almost every hacker that I've come across has had at least a passing organic interest in lockpicking. Yeah, right. <laughs> I that did. is an amazing. All the hacker cons have, have lockpick villages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think even more interesting that you – know, so now you can go to DEF CON, right, and there's a, a lockpicking village and you can get exposed to it there. But, you know, before, say, DEF CON – it, it was interesting to me to realize that um, in isolation, people that I was meeting who were hackers were also interested in lockpicking, had also hmm. managed to get a lockpick set because it's it, it's difficult in some states. In fact, in some states, it's illegal to have a lockpicking set. And it, it was just, and, and this is sort of an organic interest in, you know, uh, I mean, it's literally, you have a door in front of you that's locked that you want to get through, right? Which is it's sort of an, an analogy for, for hacking, right? There's some mm -hmm. kind of challenge in front of you and you have to figure out how to how to unlock that right and so lock, lock picking is something that that i have seen a, a lot of people occupied with social engineering I, is another one so there are some people who have who are really really gifted in social engineering and being able to sort of win your confidence um, over the telephone or even in person right um, and and sort of get you to do something or get you to believe something that you otherwise wouldn't um, and you know that that to, to me that's a kind of like relationship hacking um, mm -hmm. or or personal uh, personality hacking. Um, I, I always I always say that you know for me at its at its like highest level at the, the or or at its lowest level the most basic level hackers are people who take a system and manipulate it somehow to do things that it was not intended to do, mm -hmm. and so that could be a computer system. It could be a you know, a locked door. It could be a somebody that you're calling on the phone to try to get them to do something. It could be a political system. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's you know, it could be a human system, a technological system, what have you. It's so for me, yes, we are computer hackers, but not all hackers are computer hackers. And yes. and also it's it's a mindset that is not it's not even a modern one, I would say. You know, the example I always use is that I think of like Benjamin ha Benjamin Franklin was a hacker. Nikola Tesla was a hacker. Mm -hmm. you know, people who basically um, looked at the world around them and they're like, okay, what makes this tick? How can it, you know, how can I make it do different things, et cetera? And, and that's a, at the most fundamental level, that's, that's how, how I see it. I think that, you know, talking about things that may, indicate that you know that you're one of those people you know misha talked about social engineering and also lock picking and and you had spoken about like taking things apart um, i have a friend who always described hackers as people who who take things apart and put them back together better hmm. but more fundamentally i think it's that kind of curiosity of mm -hmm. like how do things work why do they work and and then trying to apply that to the the world that they interact with can this work differently? That that's another one. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I think the hacker mindset you you ask questions whereas that that other people take for granted. Yeah. And, and, right. And if and if you if you bothered to ask some of these questions, you you would stumble onto things, right? But I think in in you know even speaking for myself, I often have a failure of imagination about things, right? And then that uh, then that other people don't. They ask questions about some field that, that I don't know as well about, and they're able to make more progress because they don't take things for granted that I'm taking for granted. Yeah. I think, I mean, ha hackers are at, you know, at a basic level, they're driven by curiosity. Mm -hmm. Right. And I saw... Um, and so I think they, they ask questions. They ask why a lot more than other people do. And I think yeah. that I, I I think that hackers question authority too. And that and I and yep. not resist authority necessarily, though it may look that way. I think a lot of people associate hackers with anarchists and 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 anarchy. And and I, and I think there certainly is a thread there that we that you yeah. guys could talk to. But I think a lot of it's just questioning authority. It's like, what do you mean I can't do that? Why can't I do that? No, no, yeah. why? Yeah. And it, <laughs> I think you know, it's probably was, I mean, I, I'm sure it was extremely frustrating for our parents in a lot of cases, <laughs> but this sort of like a very much a, like, 
I have to understand why you want me to do something or want me to not do something. Exactly. Not, you know, just because I say so is not good enough. Yes. And I, as I say, frustrating for parents, but that's, you know, that's the way it is. All right. Next up, I've got a clip from my interview with Corey Doctorow. This was uh, episode 348 back on October 30th. So again, not that long ago, but it was really just an amazing interview. I hope you caught it the whole thing when it happened. If not, you need to go back and listen to it because it was just really super entertaining as only Cory Doctorow can be. So he has this treatise about what he calls enshittification. And so apologies again about some of the cursing that might be in this segment, but how the internet went bad, how we lost the promise of what it was supposed to be. And uh, I'm not going to say anything more about it. Let's just let Corey explain what he means by enshittification. So the thing we need to understand is that while the internet was born with a promise of disintermediation, where we take away all those middlemen that sit between producers and consumers or audiences and performers or just friends or communities mm-hmm. and, and sit between them and mediate between them and control them. And while we did disintermediate a lot of those old intermediaries, we re-intermediated everything. <laughs> the, the dominant form of the internet is the platform. And a platform yeah. is just a fancy word for a, an intermediary. Because <laughs> right. what a platform does is it sits between end users and business customers. With Uber, that's drivers and riders. With Amazon, it's sellers and buyers. With uh, um, uh, Google, it's searchers and publishers. And with um, Facebook, it's users and advertisers as well as publishers. And... Um, when platforms are uh, exist in a condition where they are neither regulated nor have any meaningful competition, they decay. And that decay follows a three-stage process I've called enshittification. And in the first stage of the process, the platform has some surplus. This is what economists, uh, the jargon economists use to describe like goodies, mm. like things that the platform can give away without failing. So in many cases, that's just the investor's capital. So like you think about Amazon selling stuff below cost when it right. started or, you know, Uber lit $31 billion on fire <laughs> over 13 years, mostly Saudi royal money, losing 41 cents on every dollar it made on every cab ride. And so, you know, an example I like to use in this case is Facebook. So Facebook's surplus when it began was that it had investor capital and it didn't have to do anything that its audience didn't like in order to make money from them. It could just give them everything they wanted. And in Facebook's Facebook's case, they went to these MySpace users, which was like everyone (laughs) using social media. And they said, you know, we know you love MySpace, but did you realize that it's owned by a senescent, crapulent, evil Australian billionaire named Rupert Murdoch and that he spies on you with every hour that God sends? Come to Facebook. We will never spy on you. <laughs> and if you tell us who matters to you in this world, we'll just show you everything that they publish for public consumption. We're just going to give you a wall of posts mm-hmm. from the people you love and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, once those users get locked in, the platform is now free to start treating them worse in order to make the business customers better. So every platform is a different way of locking in users. You know, with Amazon, there's a lot of different stuff, but like the big one is pre-selling you a year shipping in advance. Right. People, 90% of prime users start their shopping on Amazon. And once they, if they find what they're looking for, they stop. Right. And so that, that becomes a kind of lock-in. You know, there's another kind of lock-in that follows on its heels, which is that all the businesses that aren't Amazon fail. And so now you have to shop at Amazon. But, you know, with social media, there's a very special way that people get locked in, which is that we take each other hostage. So if you've ever been to like, the last time I saw you was at DEF CON. And yeah. if you've ever been at a big con with a bunch of friends and, you know, you're sitting around or at six o'clock, everyone's getting hungry and you're like, let's go get something to eat. It could take you till 10 o'clock to decide where, <laughs> right. right? And when it's like 150 people on the same social media platform and uh, when each of them is bound not just to their friends, but like their customers or communities that matter yeah, to them, right. you know, maybe they have a rare disease and that we would have to convince everyone else who has that disease to leave the platform because they're in a community for that. At that point, it's effectively impossible to leave. You have this incredible collective action problem, another term from economist jargon. And if you leave, you will have to pay a very high switching cost. That's another mm-hmm. economist term. <laughs> and it's pretty self-explanatory. It's everything right. you have to pay when you switch. So um, that's the uh, stage two arrives once the users are locked in. 
And again, to think about how it arrived with Facebook, where surpluses were withdrawn from users and give to business customers, you know, Facebook went to its advertisers and they said, hey, do you remember when we told these rubes that we weren't going to spy on them? We were totally lying. We are now spying on them from asshole to appetite. And uh, if there's any way you want to target these people, we'll target them for you. And like, we've got a building full of engineers who are going to prevent ad fraud. So if you buy an ad, someone's going to see it, right? To publishers, they went, hey, do you remember when we told these rubes, we were only going to show them the things they asked for. We were lying about that too. Just post snippets of text from your website along with a link, and we will non-consensually ram it down the eyeballs of people who never asked to see it and create a giant monetizable traffic funnel for your website. So it's locking in now these, these two different groups of business customers by giving them a really good deal. And then it starts to alter the deal. And digital is great for altering deals because right. digital is so flexible that you can change the deal from moment to moment, second to second. You can change the deal differently for every user based on your prediction about how they'll respond to the new deal. So like, um, you know, take Uber again. Uber drivers, they're, you know, the business users of, of Uber and they sort themselves into pickers and ants. So uh, a picker is someone who's picky. An ant is someone who takes every ride. And okay. Uber wants the pickers to be ants, right? Because like an ant drives around all day, whether or not they've got a fare, not costing Uber a penny, mm, putting wear mm. and tear in their car, using up fuel and not getting any uh, income. And the more ants there are, the easier it is to get a ride. And so the more riders there's going to be, because if you page an Uber and it takes 45 minutes, you're not going to page an Uber next right. time, right? So they want as many ants as possible. It's a way of subsidizing Uber shareholders. So for um, those pickers, they get offered more per mile than ants. And mm -hmm. once you start to step up how many rides you take and become less selective, the rate per mile starts to go down automatically. But... If you go like, hey, this isn't worth my while anymore, and you become more selective, the rate goes up again. Now, that's oh. not a thing even the most kind of wicked coal boss, you know, in a Tennessee <laughs> Ernie Ford song could have done. Not because he didn't want to, right? He just <laughs> right. didn't have the facilities to make that happen, right? Right. And so the digital deal gets altered from from moment to moment. So with advertisers, they you know drew, drew uh, Facebook um, draws down its uh, anti fraud. They start to increase the prices, so you're paying more to to show ads that are being shown to fewer people. With publishers, they like turn the dial on how much of your content you have to put in the post before the post gets suggested oh, uh, to people. So you have to become more and more of a commodity supplier. And in the end stage. The publishers are like, are told you have to put the whole post up and we can't tell if the link that you add at the bottom is a quote unquote malicious link. So if there's a link back to your website mm -hmm. where you monetize your users, we're not going to show it to anyone. <laughs> and then in the final stage with those publishers, it's like, even if you put the whole post up and don't link to your website, if you want your subscribers to see, you're going to have to pay to boost it, right? So this is the kind of thing that you can do. It's, I call it the Darth Vader MBA, right? I've altered the deal, <laughs> pray, don't alter it further. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and there's so much scope for that kind of conduct in digital. And so... Um, over time, they start to extract the surpluses from those business customers too. And the equilibrium they're trying to strike is a world in which there's just enough surplus that the users are locked in and just enough user or enough users that the business customers are locked in and um, no extra surplus that isn't clawed back and allocated to shareholders. Because that's the idea. The shareholders do all that subsidizing in the beginning to get paid back on the back end. And so they want as much money extracted from it as possible. But that equilibrium of nearly so bad that everyone quits, but not quite so bad that everyone mm -hmm. quits, that is like a super brittle equilibrium, right? It just takes like, in the case of Facebook, like a Cambridge Analytica scandal, a live stream mass shooting, um, uh, an effective competitor like TikTok, a whistleblower like Francis Haugen, and the next thing you know, people go from like, I hate this, but I can't leave it to Jesus Christ. Why did it take me so long to leave? I'm out of here. Right. And when yeah. that happens, you get into the final stage. So there's really not just three stages, there's three stages and an end stage. And the end stage of, of initiatification is what tech bros call pivoting, but it's really panicking. <laughs> and in the case of Facebook, the panic goes, uh, we're not a social media platform anymore. We are a, uh, a place where the human race is doomed to live out its days as legless, sexless, low polygon, heavily surveilled cartoon characters in a virtual world we stole from a 25 year old cyberpunk novel. Right. And that's like what happens when it just finally goes to shit. And we are living at a key moment right now because all the platforms are rug pulling.
right? We are living through the internet, the great inshittening, where everything that we rely on, whether it's like Unity or Reddit or, uh, you know, eBay or uh, even Red Hat, right, is just turning into a pile of shit that's not fit for purpose. And they're all betting that we'll just keep using it because there's nowhere else to go. Like, you know, like Lily Tomlin used to say in those old SNL sketches, we don't have to care. We're the phone company. In episode 324, back on May 15th, I talked with uh, a man named Vincent Hendricks, who was one of the authors of a book called The Ministry of Truth. And I was actually sitting on that book for a long time. I, it took me a long time to get around to interviewing him in this, but I'm so glad I did. Uh, and we talked a lot about social media and how it affects society uh, in very meaningful and powerful ways. And in this snippet, the first thing I asked him was, do these algorithms, are they inherently bad? Uh, you know, TikTok and Facebook and these ones that are con and YouTube, the ones that are constantly showing us, you know, if you like this, you'll like this. In fact, they don't even wait to ask you the question. They just start showing another video or uh, take you to the next thing automatically and try to keep you engaged. And I asked him, you know, if these things are really inherently bad, like are these algorithms trying to show us bad stuff or are if they're showing us what we want to see, is it generally just a mirror into ourselves? And they're really just showing us the stuff that we inherently want, which may not be things that are good for us. And then just to kind of continue playing devil's advocate a little bit, you know, I asked him, is this really new? I mean, we've had problems with things like this, you know, when radio first came out, when television first came out, there's always been this need with, as long as there's been advertising with getting eyeballs, with getting attention, with getting engagement. And a lot of the things that they were showing us to get uh, that engagement, to get us hooked on these things, so to speak, weren't always great for us either. So let's listen to what Vincent had to say about that. Well, again, I think the argument is the same as before, and it's exa exactly the same as Tristan Harris's argument. You follow the money again, right? So yeah. from that perspective, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, they are biased as to engagement. Even a lot of the counters are set up that way, right? So for instance, also during the Facebook files, Francis Haugen showed that there was an internal score system. We also have this in the book that bad content, or bad in the sense that it made us angry, got an internal score of five, whereas a like got an internal score of one. Hmm. So you were basically jacking up the anger in the feed. And why? Because it creates engagement. Right? So basically, you're plugging into what's called our activity mobilizing sentiments which we discuss a lot in the book. And those are basically, if you ask a psychologist about our emotions, they will say, well, they're at least cut across two axes. Are the emotions positive? Are they negative? Are they activity mobilizing or are they activity demobilizing? And they then various emotions will put themselves different places on the scale. So if I write out on the web, I'm so happy today. Then of course, although happiness is a, a positive sentiment, the fact that I'm happy does not, it, it does not in any way animate you to do anything. So it might be positive, but it's not activity mobilizing. Whereas if you proliferate anger, whenever I get angry, I want to do something. What do I do online? I share, I click, I like, I create engagement, right? So there is something to be said about feeding into our activity mobilizing sentiments. Why? Because they create engagement. And we have a lot of negative activity mobilizing sentiments. Anger is one indignation is another one, et cetera, et cetera. Fear, mm -hmm. fear works really well. And so if you can if you can feed into those, then you got yourself a gameplay. And of course, insofar as some of the algorithms can detect that, that at least there is a financial incentive to do so and proliferate the information. That's answer number one. Answer number two is this, namely we saw, and of course TikTok has been in the the focal eye for a lot of people lately. And one of the things that we saw that Tristan Harris also has been commenting on very recently is the fact that there are sort of two versions of TikTok. There is what he's called the opium version of TikTok. That's the one that's being fed to the Western world. Mm -hmm. And then there is the Chinese version of TikTok. And the name of that particular platform escapes me at the moment. Mm -hmm. However, you can only use that for 40, 40 minutes a day. Right. And a lot of the information and material you will find there is educational material. It is not the same thing. So they, they, they talk about the spinach version. That's the one that they mm -hmm. use in China. And then there's the opium version. That's the one that's being fed to the rest of the world. And why? Well, <laughs> think of why. Because exactly those French fries are the ones that we like to gobble down very quickly. And it's good for business. Right. Yeah, I that, think that, that is fascinating that of all the social media ones, TikTok has a different version in their native country. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Possibly because they know that this is might, might not be the best thing to consume too much of. The same way that Steve Jobs didn't have, his kids didn't have iPhones, right? <laughs> right, right. So, so I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit with you on some of these things. For instance, you know, social media is often cited as causing harms to society in, in odd ways that like body image, anxiety in teens, and, you know, generally causing people to feel that their lives are lacking. You know, they see their friends taking these amazing vacations and they're all, you know, all these wonderful perks, uh, sure. people portraying lives as being perfect. But, but this was also said of magazines, right? With airbrushed models on the covers. We were certain that that was, I and mean, that was a problem, you know, and yeah. even to unrealistic portrayals of family life on TV, you know, maybe back in the fifties where it was, you know, father's knows best and things like that. But, but even, it goes the other way too. So it's just really just a new form of the same thing, or is this fundamentally different somehow? Okay, so there are two points of this. First of all, the same goes for fake news. We wrote a book, the Reality Lost book, a couple of years ago, and of course, we can find you can trace fake news back to as long as we've had a press. Right, so right. The, the concept is not new as such, right? Now, of course, what is different now is the infrastructure, uh, the information infrastructure on one hand, and speed on the other. That we have never seen to this extent, right? So that means that it proliferates a lot more than it, what it has been done before. And then, of course, you have a much better idea of who the target groups are. You have to realize one thing, which is very important, and we realize just way too late. I mean, the entire point is not only to sell ads. Of course, you do that. But what at least as important, possibly more important, is this, all the data you collect about the users. Hmm. And that's behavioral data that you collect about how they actually do behave. Now, all that data, everything is being locked. They might not be used, but it's all logged, right? It's all being scraped off the web by the big social platforms. And why? Well, because in the end, all behavioral data is credit information. In the sense of saying, if I can predict the way in which you will behave based on your data or based on your history, etc., then basically I know what you're worth online in terms of your interest, in terms of how often you come back. So all data is credit data about the users, and you can use that for control. That's what you do very upfront in China. So the entire social credit system is based on the idea that you log people's behavior and then you modify people's behavior to the ideas of the system, yeah? Uh, that means the political system. Mm -hmm. And then basically you use it both for control, but also for possibly prediction of what your user are interested in. Now the prediction part is of course intact in liberal democracies too. It would be very nice to know what the users want before they know it themselves. And of course, uh, Eric Smith, the old boss of, 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 of Google said, in 2011 he said, I don't think that people really wanna search Google. I think people want Google to tell them what they should do next. Mm -hmm. So there you have it, right? And so from that perspective, it's not only the ads, it's also the data about the users, which in the end is credit information about you as a user. And there are a million ways from Sunday that you can use that particular information. So basically to answer your question, I think it's fair to say that we have always had fake news, we have always had problems about self-imaging, etc. But we have not had the infrastructure to this extent, to this speed, with the added bonus of people engaging with that will provide you with credit information about them. That model is new. And that's what we get from Susanna Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism in 2019, namely the idea that as humans, we have always been capitalizing and cannibalizing on something. But in the 21st century, we sort of looked around to see what's left right of us to capitalize on. And then we put a mirror up in front of ourselves and go, how about ourselves? That's a good idea. Let's do that. Let's capitalize on our cognitive resource most valuable to us, namely our attention. And the rest is history. And that's four years ago. All right. And the last clip I chose, and again, it was so hard. I, there were some really great interviews this year. And even just picking the clips within the interviews was difficult. But AI has been such a huge thing over this last year. I had to bring in a clip from Michael Littman, uh, who was from Brown University and the National Science Foundation, who I interviewed. It was a wonderful, wonderful interview. Uh, if you want to learn some more about AI and you missed that one, definitely go back and check out that full interview. But I've got a snippet here where I kind of asked him whether or not I, the concerns, a lot of the concerns in the, in the media about AI, about taking over jobs or even taking over the planet, 
we're overblown. And if these things are really just tools like anything else, and it, it, yeah, it might replace some jobs, but then it's going to create new jobs. So I asked him to kind of expound a little bit on that. And here's what he had to say. Yeah, I think one thing that's really that I've have found sort of useful when thinking about this is there's the the problems when these models aren't good enough and these problems where these models are good enough. So as long as they aren't good enough, then people are going to be applying them and they're going to be giving bad answers and we have to deal with the consequences of that. And I think that's that's more or less the stage where we are today that these these language models are pretty slick, but I wouldn't I wouldn't trust my life with them, right? Mm. Because they, they, they do hallucinate. They do kind of make up stuff. They're trained on crafty data in some places. It's, it's one of these things where it's a, it's, it's a great first cut at something. Like if you want to just really quickly get, like I, last night I needed to understand diabetes a little bit better than I do. And I'm like, what the heck is A1C? Like I hear it in commercials, but I don't know what it really is. It was able to kind of give me that first level of like, foundation on that. But then when the pusher, the, the deeper I tried to push on it, the more it was kind of spouting nonsense. And so it's, you know, it seems to be really good for that. But I, again, I wouldn't, it's not going to, it's not going to take over the world because it's just not that good. <laughs> now at some point it gets really good and then it could, then it potentially could replace people, but I would not hire one of these models to do almost anything without human supervision because they're just not good enough. And, and that's where we are today. As they get better, could they be replacing people in various ways? And the answer in principle is definitely yes. Um, you know, one of the things that I worry a lot about in my role at the National Science Foundation is how do we keep these things pointed at, at good, right? To making sure that they're doing good and, you know, replace mass replacing people so that they become out of work and unable to be productive in society. That would be bad. Uh, and so we, we worry a lot about ways that we could be, you know, training people better, getting them up to speed better. If, if it really is going to shift the job landscape, making sure that people are, are well-trained for the new kinds of jobs that are going to be appearing. This is a, a topic that comes up an awful, an awful lot, but yeah, I don't know. From my perspective, I think it's overblown to say they're going to replace everybody's jobs tomorrow because they're just not like. They're just not. They're they're news stories. I've seen some news stories where people say things. Oh, you know, we had we had been hiring all these counselors to kind of talk to people on the phone, but we don't need that anymore. <laughs> and then a week, and I think it's very much wishful thinking. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. their budget is being cut. They don't have the money to hire people, and they're crossing their fingers and hoping that that one of these chatbots is going to be able to take over. And then they try it, and they're like, "Huh, we're just going to have to make do with fewer people because yeah, the chatbots are just not dependable." So that I think is overblown. Uh, the notion that they're going to that the system is going to rise up and outsmart us and and extinct us, I think that's incredibly overblown. I really just don't think this is within the realm of what these systems are capable of. Could they, some point in the future, be much more powerful and actually challenge us for dominance of the planet? Yeah, maybe, but it's not. I think we need a bunch of breakthroughs uh, to happen before that's the case. I, this is not anything that keeps me up at night. My view on this is that I think these are tools like anything else. And in and, and same the way, in, in the same way that like a crane or a, or a backhoe, maybe replace 10 guys who could dig something with a shovel. There's still the guy driving the backhoe. These things are tools. And then now it just needs a specialized, maybe a more specialized, tra higher trained person to run that tool. It might replace, you know, some of the people do it, but now we've got mechanics that need to fix it right now. There are new jobs being created that we didn't have before. The shovel fixer was a simple job. That was probably something you could do. But if you bring a backhoe, that requires a mechanic. So I I, I think these are going to be amazing assistants for a, a lot of the things that we do and are going to uh, – does that make sense to you? Does that do, – do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So so I, you, you mentioned earlier that I've got a book coming out in October. Yes. And but the focus of that book is basically to try to empower people, like learn enough coding that you can be empowered so you can get computers to do what you want them to do because – that's what they're for. They're our tool. They're, they're our thing for helping us get work done. And to the extent that they're threatening, that's not what they're for. That is not the point of this technology. But I think to, to really take advantage of it, we all need to know a little bit more about, about coding and how that works. Now, in the past, that means you basically have to learn to be a programmer and learn a programming language. What's nice about these machine learning tools is they can help bridge the gap between what the computer is able to do and what the person wants it to do and just just kind of meet us part way. And so that's 
I think that's the, as you point out, I think that's the right way to think about this. They're not replacing people because they're not people, right? right? They can't, they don't substitute for that category. They can empower people and potentially that can cost jobs, right? So if the the, uh, the shovel operator can do the work of probably 20 human diggers, so you don't have to hire those 20 human diggers. So the jobs don't go away, but they do potentially come become more concentrated. And so trying to figure that out and really navigate that space is it's important from a policy perspective. It's an important from an education perspective. And it's important that we all stay educated about what the upcoming shifts look like. All right, everybody, that is it for this week. I hope you enjoyed a little look back at the best of 2023, or at least some key highlights from 2023. A couple of quick things before we go. Uh, it's not too late to give the gift of privacy and security to print off some of those coupons that I made and put them in people's stockings. Give the gift of your time to help people become more private, more secure. To check that out, go to fdsd.me slash coupons, and that'll take you to the article. If you want to skip the article, you can just scroll down to the bottom. There's a button there. Uh, you can download the coupons. Those are great gifts. And if you would like someone to help you set up a password manager or set up a VPN or set up two-factor authentication or de-Google some of your stuff, if you want some help with that, then you can ask people. You can put this on your wish list and ask people to give you these coupons. Also, if you're still looking for some last-minute gifts, you can review my best and worst gift guide. I would just, uh, you could go back and listen to the podcast episode, but it's probably easier just to go to the article on this. Go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, and you'll, you know, it's one of the most recent articles there. It's pretty easy to find. I've got lots of ideas about things you should get and plenty of stuff about what you shouldn't get if you want to enhance people's cybersecurity and protect their privacy. So next week, I've got kind of a special rerun for you. Actually, it's two different episodes, I think, is what I'm going to do. Uh, and I decided to go all the way back. I've been doing this almost seven years now. March will be seven years. And so uh, next week will be a kind of a throwback episode all the way back to 2017. I picked a couple really interesting uh, interview snippets from from that year that hold up and stand the test of time, things that are still very interesting and relevant today. And ones that, that unless you have been here since the very start of my podcast, which I'm guessing is not terribly likely you have not already heard so in that sense they will be new to you and i've thrown in some other kind of interesting historical stuff too so i hope you'll find that uh, fun episode that'll be next week and then after that the week after that uh, i'll be doing a best of 2023 from the bonus podcast so unless you are a patron you have not heard these before and this is a lot of the extra bonus stuff that i get from my patrons that i keep telling you about every week okay patrons on thursday you're gonna get this uh, this is this is that stuff, and this is some of the best clips from that. And I got some great bonus content, too, so I hope you will enjoy that. All right, everybody, have a very safe and happy and relaxing holiday season. And until next week, as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>